Strategy. Design. Marketing. UX. Digital. Development. This is Agencies That Build. This show is dedicated to leaders and teams that design and deploy in the digital world. My name is Jesse, and I'm a marketer and an agency owner. And I'm Varun. I'm not a marketer, but a coder and an agency partner. This show is sponsored by Together We Ship. On a mission to help agencies grow. All right, rock on. We're here. Hi, Varun. What's up? How are you? Very good. I'm very excited to actually go to this in-person conference today. I'm going to Boston and my first, well, after COVID, first in-person meetup with 50 or people. So I'm wow. about that. Yeah. That's a uh... I mean, I guess the big question, uh, I, I, we'll, we'll introduce Mark here in a minute, then I'll ask you both, have you eaten at a restaurant yet? Like, that's the big thing that everyone in my my world keeps asking. But an in-person, 50-person conference is kind of a big deal in these yeah. these days. That's uh, good luck. Are you, are you nervous? Is that I'm like... No. Is it a weird, it's kind of a weird thing to even ask, like, are you nervous to be in person, something that we've done for many tens of years? I won't age any of us, but so, well, I'm excited to talk to today's guest. How about that? How's that for a nice transition? (laughs) (laughs) Um, He is a UX design practitioner, has over 20 years experience implementing a human-centered design approach to solve difficult problems, has helped to establish design practices for upstart businesses and Fortune 500 companies, including Microsoft and GE Healthcare. He's the co-founder of fuzzy math mark baldino hi mark welcome to the show hello thank you for having me are you nervous to go out in public <laughs> i i or to I, eat I've at been, a restaurant <laughs> i've been practicing exposure therapy for the past like month and a half so it started on the two-week anniversary of getting the vaccine um i had dinner with some family <clears throat> outside and that felt like a big step there you and go and then I was just traveling um, for the first time to the East Coast, to DC, where I went to school, and then down to Georgia to visit my brother. So I was on three airplanes. Um, I ate in a restaurant without a mask, which was like super, super weird um, and not something I uh, miss at all being inside restaurants. But uh, all of it has given me, it's made me more comfortable and less anxious in my, in my day-to-day life, which I think is what I needed because um, I, was in a, I was in a protective bubble for like 12 or 14 months. Yeah. That's an interesting way to describe it is this, you know, this conditioning, unconditioning, whatever, yeah. what was the word you used a minute ago? I should have written it down. I say exposure therapy. Yeah. I think so, that's a thing. It, well, it is now you made it a thing. So, well, that actually leads me into our, our beginning question is, is, you know, obviously a lot of our conversation is COVID related and, and interesting enough in the conversations we have with agency owners, how does COVID affect you? Things like yeah. that. But you know, from a, our myth busting question here, you know, what myth was bogus strategy? What sort of misconception would you like to clear up? Well, I'm, I think the myth is one that I bought into at the start of going 100% virtual was that communication and meetings were going to be strained and less productive. Um, and I think the that's just the opposite. I actually think um, the truth is that the meetings we've had as a team and with our clients have been more, more productive. Um, and while people would have said that 
um, maybe people weren't going to participate or weren't going to communicate as much or would just be sort of during the headlights while on a screen. And I want to admit that like Zoom fatigue and meeting fatigue is a, is, is a real thing. I don't want to discount that. But I think when people have been engaged in meetings, they've been more, more effective. I mean, online meetings in, in general are more accessible and inclusive for people who can't get to, can't leave their house for any sort of reason pre-COVID or, you know, may have a, um, a disability and aren't able to make it out into certain venues. Um, so I think there's like this accessibility component, but then I think there's this sort of like democratization of meetings that I've seen. Um, no and one wants- talking, Not to jump in, but you're talking yeah. pre-COVID, post-COVID and yeah, pro- the yeah, other yeah. side of that. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I think the other side of it is is how we keep how we keep doing what's been effective during COVID, right? Well, so that, you know, everyone's talking about the hybrid. Like, what is yeah. the hybrid approach? Like, what is that? I guess maybe that's the next question. What does that mean to you? Is that something you guys? Because you were fully at Fuzzy Math. Yep. You guys were all in house. We were a hundred percent Chicago based. Everyone full time designers few contractors here and there, but usually mm-hmm. outside of our core skill set in an office in, in Chicago. And we flipped the switch, I don't know, maybe the 13th of March, 2020 and became hundred percent virtual. And over the course of that year, some folks um, like became more virtual. They moved to other cities. And so we're actually trying to figure out what that looks like. And, and I'll say as a small business owner, um, you know, we're from about 20 people, uh, maybe 18 right now, you know, how much time and energy do I devote to figuring out the hybrid workforce is something that I worry about versus how do I, how can I let other bigger companies with more resources figure it out for me? And then I have a better plan in like three or four months because I don't necessarily need to be a trailblazer. We were super early out of the office before Chicago officially shut down and we're going to be super late, probably back to the office. And I think we're going to use that buffer period, which is probably now until I think the fall maybe um, to figure out a little bit of a plan, but let other people trailblaze because um, again, it's a, it's a resource constraint issue, but, but to get back to the original points, we've had some real successes in, in meetings, um, and a quality of ideas and contributions from people across the board and in client meetings, whereas usually we'd have one stakeholder sort of maybe dominate a conversation in person. Like, how do we do that now that some people are going to be remote? Our clients might be all back in person. I might have some remote people. Like, that's a huge question. Like, how do you keep some of the, of the, I don't want to say there's any benefits of COVID, but how do you keep any of the benefits of working remotely when you go into hybrid, I think is a real challenge for, for businesses of any shape and size. Well, it's interesting you said that, that meetings have been more efficient for you, especially coming from the design consulting, design studios perspective, right? Where everything is so collaborative. You see, you visualize, you you know, in the office on the, on the wall, you draw things, you sketch things. And then, you know, it, there is so much collaboration happening. And now if suddenly everyone is remote working from their home, they, you must be using tools and everything to share your screens. And, uh, but still, do you still get the same intensity? I mean, we are dev, we are dev shop as well. So for us, it was not as much as working in person because they are just doing coding. But I see from creative perspective, I think people tend to, you know, want to stay together and work together in the same room. So what did you guys do differently that had made it more efficient? I mean, if you have some. Yeah, no, I I think the energy is a great point. It is hard to replicate the in-person dynamic when we do a lot of workshops with our clients. Um, And so maybe the, the, 
energy is a little bit different, but I think the contributions are better. Um, so we do use, we use tools like, you know, Miro boards. Um, and so we're sort of taking that digital translation of what you would do traditionally with stickies on a board. Um, but even in those meetings, you, you, I think you have to be like, um, uh, you know, a plus facilitator to get, make sure everybody is, is included. And as a designer, um, even when you're reading the running, you know, reading the room, you're always going to default to people who are, who are kind of talking the most. I hate to say that, but you're trying to keep the momentum going. Right. And if somebody's going to talk, you're going to kind of keep seeding those conversations. What we've done with, you know, zoom and plus Miro is we've actually moved all of our material. That's like educational presentation will be a traditional deck into the Miro board. So we stay in Miro from start to finish. We do our kind of intros and we introduce an, an exercise in Miro. We'll do a large group discussion. We'll do breakout rooms, um, individual um, content contribution, and then do like large group discussions again. And we just use that blend of individual, small group and large group, which is really hard to do um, unless you have an amazing space um, to do in, in person. And so I think those are the, chip, the, the, the tricks are to give people different opportunities to dial into the meetings and, and share um, in different formats. Some people are going to be way more comfortable sharing when it's a large group and some people are going to be more comfortable, you know, obviously contributing individually one-on-one. -on -one. I think in, in workshops, there's not enough like I'm going to sit here and think about a problem as myself and contribute. There's a lot of like group group think, which is great, but actually I think you get a lot of information from individual contributors um, in an online environment. It's, it's you said something interesting in there too, around facilitation and it's a conversation we haven't had, but it's, I think it's relevant to this, you know, remote kind of hybrid, whatever we want to call the future of this business, you know, having facilitation skills while important have not been urgent in the past. And it's an interesting point to be able to facilitate kind of remote work versus to be yeah. able to encourage the ability to speak. Um, that's, that's, I, that's a, such an interesting I hadn't thought about that before because you see a lot of, you know, you think of meeting facilitation as in person or leadership events or larger conferences or things like that, you know, again, yeah. from a marketing perspective and even clients of mine who have been meeting facilitators who needed some marketing help and how to position that. And, you know, there's just this, it's a unique opportunity to be able to come in and even workshops that you're getting paid to, to do for clients, being able to have that be successful in a remote environment and adapting to that, having those skills and be able to use this in a marketable tool. Interesting, kind of a cool shift. Yeah, I think it's been, I think um, when everybody's a box on a screen, there's a little bit more quality. And, and I'd encourage when people are running workshops to stop screen sharing and go back to kind of the gallery grid view maybe the, the fancy teams view where everyone's like in a chair or something like that, but, but, and kind of try to gauge how, you know, people's answers and how they're, how they are engaged. I think people's in-person uh, kind of um, gravitas or how they carry themselves, that can really kind of shift a dynamic in a room and you don't get as good of a sense for it when people are um, in a remote setting. We have an employee who's been with us for a year and we, I've, I've never met this employee. So at some point we did this competition, which said, um, try to guess everybody's height. Um, and, uh, you know, there was a power dynamic in, in, in height. I, I happen to not be a very tall person. Um, so maybe I'm more acutely aware of it than not, but it was really interesting to have them guess. And we didn't, you know, we didn't make a big deal out of it, but I think when you're in a room, you might gravitate towards certain people and you might want to moderate or, you know, facilitate a group in a different way. And when everyone's just a screen, you kind of treat everybody a little bit more equal. And I think that that's a real benefit. And I think our clients can feel that and our team can feel, can feel that whether we're doing an internal kind of meeting or we're doing a client workshop. That's, 
that's it's i mean it's a good point i never i didn't it's very qualitative uh you know i I, it's just my experience but we've done some really strategic you know like work so when i say product strategy it's we're going to do primary research with their users synthesize that do some storytelling personas journey maps and put like product or organizational roadmaps together. Mm. And that's like super strategic for the organization. We worked with a large bank in New York to, to help them build a, a roadmap for their internal employee experience, which of course really, you know, on point given that they were in fully remote and moving to a hybrid. Yeah. But roadmaps are strategic pieces and we did that all remotely. And I think our ability to dial into these remote meetings and contribute and get, leave them with a w- kind of work in progress in Miro and then come back in in a, you know, a few days like that back and forth. I think was really effective for them. And then they can take it out of whatever tool we're using and put it into PowerPoint if they need to. Um, but I just saw those meetings be um, run really well, lots of great comp, um, kind of contribution. Um, and we weren't tackling simple things. We were t- tackling fairly complex um, subject matter. So I can compare it to when we were fully remote and it just felt they're fully in person. It felt a little bit like us versus them. We're the consultancy and we're over here at our table and you're the client and you're at your table. And, and, and that's a weird dynamic that we want to shift. So how we find that blend is going to be, you know, uh, I think it's going to be a blend of tools, technology, um, but that blend in the hybrid world, I think is going to be interesting to watch. I think it's going to be more challenging to be quite honest. How did that impact the culture overall? Did you get some backlash? Did you like everybody were, ready to go in all remote or did people miss i'm sure people miss in person meetings but how the transition once that happened once they got used to it but now there must be some cultural shift as well before and after how are you coping yeah. up with that is you know how, how does that work in your form i mean i'll be honest again i think this is why this this period of transition out of fully remote into in the office is um is a bigger risk i think from a culture and company perspective, large and small than people are than people are realizing, right? So my biggest fear wasn't meetings going into COVID. It wasn't utilization, how well we'd be able to perform. It was cultural. What does it feel like to work for, for Fuzzy Math where we have quote unquote strong culture, but we just have a kind of a strong internal bond and the people who work at Fuzzy Math, we might not all be friends outside of the office, but we all get along really, really well. We're, we're studious as a group. We work really hard. We keep our heads down, but we don't take it too seriously. Um, kind of been described as, you know, um, you know, like smart librarians or something like that. You know, we keep our nose in the books, we keep working really, really hard. We're very pragmatic, but but there's also a sense that you know it's a fun place to work with interesting with interesting people. So once you flip the switch and everyone's remote, it's how do we keep that up? And so we just extended some of our, you know, one of our kind of cultural institutions is what we call Fuzzy Math Fridays or FM Fridays. It's every third Friday, we either take a half a day or a full day and a group, an internal working group um, runs that exercise or we're actually doing a storytelling workshop in two weeks. So we're bringing in a third party just to help help us tell, tell stories better. So we kind of learn things during these FM Fridays. That's an easy one for us to extend virtually. Um, our holiday party was a difficult one, right? We usually gather at a restaurant. We all get together. It's the last day of the year. We Another cultural institution is we close Fuzzy Math down for two weeks at the end of every year. Um, it's extra, um, you know, vacation for for everybody. So it's always like the Friday before that we would, you know, kind of do our our blowout holiday party. And so we did that remote, and that felt a little bit weird. Right? I think for most people celebrating the holidays, they they felt weird. But because we're all in the same sort of boat, so to speak, it felt okay. 
I have employees that, that um, are in Chicago that uh, would like to be remote. They want to, they don't want to get on trains. I get it. I have folks who want to be in the office. Uh, we have one or two people who are walk, working here and there, I think just to get out of their, their house and never change scenery. And I think I have some folks that are, that are interested in, in staying in another city and working for fuzzy math. And um, uh, my, my bent as a founder is that yeah, I value my, my employees and that um, the company's probably better with this person remote than without that person. And we just have to find a way to make it work because I actually think it's gonna be really hard for them. Their work-life balance might be a little bit easier. They're not going to have to commute, but the fact that they're not as well physically connected, the, the kind of human bond, um, that that is actually what's keeping me up, up at night. Not to mention the fact that there's plenty of good jobs out there, great jobs, which are remote anywhere. And um, that's a real, you know, now I'm competing. I don't think I'd lose folks to Facebook and Google. We're not in the, in the Bay Area, um, but, you know, there are plenty of companies globally that are looking for UX design talent. It's a highly sought after, um, and they're going to pay, you know, great salaries to, and you can work from Fiji if you want to, like, I have I don't really have a way to compete with that, certainly from a location perspective. Um, and it can be hard to compete with bigger businesses from, you know, a compensation perspective. So um, that, that worries me. Talent retention is something we've never had to focus on because we've had great. I mean, I think our average tenure is like four years at Fuzzy Math and, um, and I'm proud of that but it's going to be a new dynamic and I'm, and I'm worried about it. I'm just talking um, because I don't have an answer for it and it kind of scares me. So I hope that's okay to share to people. No, that was actually going to be our next question. It's like, you know, it is a concern. It is part of the conversation with this is, is how do you hire? How do you consider hiring? How do you retain? You know, these are our challenges for exactly the reasons that you're laying out there. You know, that would beg the question, you know, you're thinking about people within the Chicago area and from a retention standpoint, but are you thinking about, you know, are you thinking about expanding how you would hire? You know, let's say you do have slots you need to fill or either support or there's projects that come in that are, yeah. you know, what are, what, what are, share some I mean, of, the, kind of your thoughts. Before, you answer, before sure. you answer, I just want to call out because or, or on being, being so transparent about the fear, because that is so true fear. Not everybody talks about it. I mean, we have spoken to so many of agencies in the last few months, right? Nobody has really expressed that as concern. And I always question that because it, it is the concern, like, because like now you are competing against like the way you explained, right? Globally, all the big, big, big companies are actually going after these talents who are working remotely. So how do you keep your talent? What can you change in your company to, to make sure they stick with it? It's not only just the money anymore. I mean, people used to work for money i i mean not everybody works for money anymore right sure so what else can you can you give them what else how can you retain them what what is the purpose for them staying with you things like yeah. those but um you know just wanted to mention that that you know thanks for sharing you i mean, I mean you bet i'll i'm sort of honest about what i know and and what i don't you know if i have to sell in a ux project to a fortune 100 company i know I know all the nuts and bolts of it. I've done it all myself. I feel confident in it and I feel really confident in my team. But the other parts of running an agency, sales and business development, um, marketing, uh, human resources as a whole, you know, like that stuff is all learned. And a lot of people that run agencies of my size, you know, five to 30, I think the majority of them are probably practitioner founded. 
um, and led. And sometimes maybe you have a good blend between somebody who's more sales oriented and somebody's more process oriented. My fellow co-founder Ben, we're both practitioners, so we've kind of we've we've taken to certain parts of it and um, and um, and put that under our, our each of our wings. But but things like culture just happened. Um, kind of naturally as, as an, as an agency. And I think that that's how it, it should be. And now our team owns it. And so we have a set of values that, that the team has, a, has established. Um, and I think one of our ways to sort of, um, to keep people is a, is a real gut check on whether we're kind of living out those values with each other and with our, with our clients. And, and that's not my challenge to the team. It's the team's challenge. We actually have an internal working group called values and vision. We don't have internal working group called culture because it all leads to culture, but values and vision is really responsible for us imbuing the values that, um, that we have as a, as an agency, um, with our clients and with each other and actually paying attention, uh, paying attention to that, but there's opportunities to a remote workforce, right? Like, um, we've started to look at some of the, um, you know, diversity, uh, equity and inclusivity and, and, and access, um, issues in in the design community and in design leadership, and do we have a role to play in that and help help fix that? Um, I think the answer is is yes, and we've been working on that. The idea that I can hire somebody from another location, um, you know, for a role that isn't based in Chicago, um, but that is able to contribute remotely, like it opens up the workforce um, in a number of meaningful ways that I think can can move some some metrics. Uh, but we just had our first discussion of if, if we're ready to make our next hire, is it remote or is it, is it in person? And we just came with a, a simple, in the short term, our preference is Chicago. And that's kind of where we are. And I think that reflects the nature of, of, of kind of our business. Um, but we're open to it. And as we expand our internship program, we're bringing actually two interns on next week. We do every summer for three months. I'm excited. We have an apprentice program. I think those are areas where remote work can, you know, we can get more, more access to people who need mentoring and, uh, and apprenticeships or internships that are all across the country. And instead of making them come to Chicago um, for six months for an apprenticeship or three months for an internship, whatever the time frame might be, we can do it remotely. Um, we should do that because it's going to provide more access to people. And that's, that's certainly important. So after, after your internship, I mean, it's interesting uh, that you are, are opening up your remote or internship, but are you, what, what you're saying is after the internship, are you going to, you, you're planning to keep them remote and work from wherever they want, or you want them to bring to Chicago and have them work from there as well? Well, our internship program is not pre, like pre-hire, pre, pre-full-time at Fuzzy Math. We have some interns who've stayed on because we were ready to make a hire, but you know, we're 12 years old. 18 people strong. We really only hire one or two a year. Um, so we kind of make the promise that we're going to give you an internship for, for three months. Uh, they work on a pro bono project, but we treat it like a actual project. We're doing a mobile tool in healthcare this year, which I'm super excited about with a company out in, in Seattle. And it's, it's treated like a, a traditional project from start to finish by just by chance, both of these interns happen to be Chicago based, but last year they weren't. Um, and so we would have had to have a discussion if we, we sort of kept them on to see, and actually, I'm sorry, one intern was Chicago based and we, we did keep on. And so it wasn't an issue, but we would have to kind of have that open discussion, but I wouldn't want, I don't want to make being in Chicago, um, the, uh, 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 filter for people that I think, um, could benefit the most from an internship or an apprenticeship. And, and so if it worked out that this person was a, uh, was a potential hire, then we'd have to, to figure that out. But if I have existing employees who have, who, who maybe want to work remote. I feel like I probably as a business owner want to be opening up to everyone, but, but new employees, 
are, are special. They're, 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 you know, it's different. They're generally new designers to the career. First two, year is, two, first two years is vital from a development perspective of their design skills and comfort level. And um, we, we have to have um, unique candidates that can do that remotely. So again, another challenge. It's not one that keeps me up at night because if I think if I have a strategic advantage um, in the market, it's not, this isn't really something I'd sell on, but my team excels at teaching and training and mentorship of each other. Um, and so our talent development internal, even if we're making it a little bit more formal these days now with like career maps and career ladders, um, but it's always been fantastic. And the, my team, I think of a lot of them could, could just mentor full-time and, and not do client work. They probably would choose to do that, but we just try to fit it in around the client work. There's been a few people I've chatted with recently who have been, you know, there's a big shift, people finding new gigs as we're coming out of this, you know, there's a huge hiring going on right now. I don't have the statistics in front of me, but I've just seen it. And there's a few people from my past who have pinged me and said, Hey, you know, can I get some career advice and stuff like that? And it's interesting listening to you. One of them in particular has been working East coast lives West coast. And it's like, I just want to work in a West coast company you know, within the, the city this person is located in. And so I do, you know, going back to kind of existing employees and catering to them from, you know, what can we do to, from a retention standpoint and having some of the fears in terms of hiring there, I do think there is a crop of people who are looking to work within the cities that they kind of reside in because there is, is exactly what, you know, is that cultural piece, is the mentoring, is the training, especially with kind of the younger folks coming out of school. It's so, I had a couple of interns myself this summer and I, like you, love to train and mentor and all of that. And it's so hard to do it remotely. Like, so, cause it's like, what do you, they have a thousand questions and it's, they, you know, you feel bad slack. And every time you have a question, it's like, I wish you could just sit in the room with me. Like, can you just come over and we can sit here and figure it out together? Like, so it's, uh, the struggle is real and I, I appreciate, you know, I appreciate this conversation for that in particular. So yeah. you, you also mentioned about the um, opportunities that come up with, you know, opening up the hiring and go anywhere. Um, does that make, well, so you, you shared your concerns and you shared your opportunities. Where, when you think about both perspective, where do you see your company going from there, right? Like pre-COVID, you must have some plan to grow the business. Post-COVID, how has that plan changed or if that has changed or is there any mind shift on that at all, on the growth perspective for your agency? I mean, I, I honestly have to say no, maybe isn't a, this, this sort of most interesting of answer, but it's the truth. We have... We've um, built and grown the business uh, methodically over time and been very conservative from a financial perspective. We've kept a lot of money in the bank um, to, to just sort of ensure that we have run in, in the business. Generally, nine, on average, nine to 10 months of, of run in the business, meaning between the work I've sold and the money we have in the bank, if we didn't sell anything else, we could run the business for, for nine months. As, as COVID hit, we, we ate into that, right? Um, now we were fortunate to do some PPP loans and that's been fantastic, but we ate into a little bit of our, our runway naturally. So it, it makes me concerned. And, and as a conservative, from a financial perspective, as a conservative person, I think, um, you know, wanting to kind of, um, keep money, uh, and, and continue to save, which is hard to do as a business owner, but really focus on that and, and make sure that we're really running the business as efficiently and possible as possible, because what we don't want to do is make hires too early. Maybe previously, 
I, I think I've heard a good stat is, you know, you should have 10 to 15% of your workforce on the bench, right? Ready to take a new project. I think I've probably been around 10% traditionally. Mm, you know, I'm, I'm much more comfortable being in the sub 5% on the bench right now and just making sure that we're super, that we're super um, uh, efficient. But we've also changed kind of how we go about finding work, which has been a, a big shift. So the, the, if I've changed anything in my professional career over the past years, I've actually taken sales seriously. Um, and it doesn't mean I wasn't servicing clients during, during sales, but it was very passive um, inbound. Um, you know, we did lots of, you know, articles, newsletters, we did a lot of content. I think we have good case studies, but it was really somebody comes to us with a need and, and, and we were, we respond. And while I'm not on the phone dialing 50 people a day, you know, my, uh, my outbound um, connections um, to partners, um, but, but more directly to potential clients um, in areas that we've served before is a big shift. And to be quite honest, I don't believe I can grow my business in its current, much greater in its current size without continuing to do that. Um, you just kind of hit a limit. I mean, um, you know, some people say it's in the five to eight. Some people have an eight multiplier. So it's like at eight, your business is one thing. At six, it goes through a shift. It's at, at 16, it's a little different. At 24, it's different. Some people, it's 10. I, I just noticed at certain times, you sort of grow to what you can actually sell and, and service. And you have a number of options as a business owner. You can go add an additional line of business. So if we're a design agency, we could get into development, right? Or you can really start to do more outbound and lead generation and do what's actual, what real salespeople do, which is business development. And that's our focus because um, we've always attended to stay focused on, on user-centered design, human-centered design, UX design. We have a bit of a niche in the enterprise and B2B space as well. And I'm comfortable, I'm comfortable there. There's been plenty of times people have come to me and said, I need a full service agency. And I thought, man, that's a big client and a big and a big name. They need it. They need the design and the strategy we can provide, but they also need to build. And and I've always stayed firm with, I have a partner who can help you or a series of partners for you to select from, but I'm not going to add that. And there are many nights when I'm going to bed worried about fuzzy math that I think, man, if I had some development recurring revenue, just some maintenance work, I don't know, 400 hours a month, that would make me feel better. Um, but we don't, and we're very project oriented. Um, and we help people with really big lifts, like going from a legacy architecture to full SaaS based, um, software as, you know, software as service web-based in the cloud, right? That's a huge transformation for the customers. And, and they don't need that every year. They need it once for like nine months. And then, and then they say, thank you so much. We'll, we'll come back to you when we need something else. And it's just, that's the business I've chosen to build and grow. And so I need to go, I need to go hunt for clients out there and, and find the right ones to bring in as opposed to just being purely responsive. Cause I did, we've just hit a little bit of a ceiling, which I think is natural in a bunch of businesses. What you're saying is um, you, you have always been project-based and that is how you want to continue as well. Uh, and when you do project-based, then, you know, yes, hunting and selling is absolutely necessary. Um, does that also mean that you are very, um, because you mentioned that you have had thoughts about starting a new line of business. Are you going to, so company of your size, I mean, from when I think about our listeners, you know, they are small five, 10 people company, when they are at that stage, when they mm -hmm. want to grow bigger, 15, 20, 25, they will, you know, feel the same challenges, they will experience something similar. What, what, how should they think about growth and how should they think about the market scenario now, you know, after COVID or even before COVID? This 
usually happens with the team grows, right? You need a constant inflow of revenue and, and, and businesses. And you have restricted yourself, you know, to very, you know, niche yep. segment. Yep. Um, how, so, well, the question on that, I think that was just my random thought on what you said, but I, I what I'm trying to understand is what would be your thought, what was your thought process on staying with the same um, service areas that you are doing now? Why did you not go into different, or if you take the route, you know, what would, how would you advise that? I mean, um, I used fear before as a, as an answer to a question. I think a lot of, a lot of it is fear. I know uh, we know one thing and we're good at it and adding something else is, uh, seems a little bit scary. I think it in- inherently creates a risk within an organization. Um, I don't know if either of you have read Let My People Go Surfing by Yvonne Chouinard. He's the founder of Patagonia. It's an um, amazing book. It's, um, it's like a third, uh, his life story, a third Patagonia. Patagonia founding and a third, like how to run an ethical business. Um, and, you know, he, there's a quote in there, which is uh, the sooner a company tries to be what it's not, um, the sooner it tries to have it all, uh, the sooner it will die. I don't, it's a little extreme, um, right? I don't know if that's the case, but I believe that there's something there. There's a core value that we provide to our clients and it's not around the technology. If anything, it's getting people's heads out of engineering and technology, they, so many companies drive just technology. We have, a, we have a, I don't know, a thousand engineers and two designers, but we're successful, right? And that's great, but the product is probably awful and hard to use. And they probably don't show it on their website because they're embarrassed by it, but they're able to sell it, sell, sell, sell. And, and our uh, you know, reason for being is to try to transfer that. Instead of being engineering-led, let's be human-led. Let's, let's, instead of saying, here's a great piece of technology, go figure out how to use it. It's let's understand how people want to use this a tool that does this and then let's force the engineering to fix that problem and once you're a full service vendor you start to speak in a different language right you start to um uh, you want to suggest people work in react or you think that there's a great content management system they should use i don't begrudge anybody for doing that so i'm not saying the only way is to stay focused um for us it makes the most sense i think it provides the most value to our clients i think we can attract um amazing designers that want to come work at an agency that focuses on ux and puts kind of money where its mouth is in terms of the process, a lot of UX um, is translated as, as let's update the UI. Plenty of people doing who are great designers who are in big organizations and all they're doing is wireframes. And I've done that professionally. It was very helpful for me. That's not what we offer my team. My UX designers do um, primary research, interviews, surveys, synthesis, journey maps, um, concepting, validation research, rapid prototyping. Like they do kind of soup to nuts. We have also have visual designers that do the more refined visual design. So I can offer something unique. Once I start to offer a bunch of ancillary services, uh, my, my, unique, my uniqueness isn't there for my team. It also means I'm a commodity. Um, I'm one of a million development firms out there that have, even if I didn't bolt on UX, which is what they all do, they add a UX team when they were core custom software development. Now they've built a strategy and UX team. That's fine. There's money in the space. Um, but once I add development and add a set of services, all of a sudden my differentiation in the market is, is very different. Instead, I'm getting customers who don't need development and, and they don't have a tech problem. They have a user problem or a human problem or a design problem. And I know I can, I can solve that. And it also clarifies who my client is. I want to go find people who have legacy software or underperforming SaaS-based platforms, and they want to move to the cloud infrastructure, which isn't us. 
um, but they want to improve the, the user experience or people who've been part of a PE and merger and acquisition process and they have six dis- different products and none of them work well and none of them work together. Let's build kind of a platform as a service. Like those are two very clear opportunities. If I was a full service vendor, I think it'd be harder for me to clarify who an ideal user is for, for fuzzy math. And um, I think that's, that's the benefit of, of focus. But I do think people have an opportunity to, to, go, to go broad Maybe they do UX for everything as opposed to UX for um, enterprise like we focus on, or, or maybe they start to add SEO and content strategy because they want to be a more full service model. Their growth arc is probably different than, than mine. And I think that's totally fine. And they want to get bigger and they probably want to sell the business. Um, you know, sure. If somebody comes and wants to buy fuzzy math, I'll listen to the offers, but we're, we're kind of growing to be more sustainable in terms of its long-term tra- trajectory and, and, you know, longevity as a business and a place that designers can, can um, call home. And that means good clients, good team, good work. Um, and, you know, it doesn't always mean that it, it generally means we're not doing a, a lot of things that aren't in our sweet spot in terms of services we offer. Keeping your business sustainable is an interesting point, especially when you said that it's mostly project-based. So when you, when you're project-based, it's always, hunting it's always on the you know on the run how do you foresee this industry you know and the competition like you you are as you said you're not unique like well you may have unique characteristics but there are tons sure. of other companies out there um how do you then differentiate yourself like you know um i mean you you the challenge in hiring is one thing but challenge in getting in you know hired by a client is other areas, especially now, even clients are open to go out and you know just hire anywhere, right? Sure. So yeah. what what other agency owners talk about when we speak to them is they get concerned about people or their clients going you know near shore, offshore, just because you know now they can hire people of some you know at a much much lesser cost. So yeah. do you? have that as a concern fear or you feel confident about everything that you do is like you know it's very unique to yourself well i think that um there's there's good ux firms out there there are parts of our process that everyone does um i don't share the offshore um near shore concern because the quality of the work is of a different nature and i don't mean it's bad quality there's like amazing UI designers in Eastern Europe. I've seen like really incredible work coming out of them. The process is usually a little bit different and the, the output that they need is UI. If somebody comes to me and they need the output that they need is UI, the problem they're solving is UI. I could probably price that a little bit more aggressively and maybe bring it in, but it's not, it's not the type of work that's a good fit. You know, I, strategy is something I avoided saying we do as a services firm for eight years until I realized we were providing strategic value to our clients. And I was like, oh, well, I should start calling a strategy because you know what? Everyone else is calling it, is it calling a strategy? We have a lot more projects now that are um, that are around like digital product strategy that sometimes don't result in UI or result in a very small UI like prototype. And, um, and I think that that's an area that, a, you know, I think an offshore less skilled team in the actual kind of human centered design process um, would struggle with, not to say that they couldn't do it, but they're always, because their price point's going to be honestly like a fifth of my price point from an hourly perspective, probably. 
Um, the type of work that they're going to be able to crank out is going to be a bit more of a commodity and it's going to be a bit more UI focused. And again, good quality, but it's not, there's not going to be a differentiator. And so if somebody comes to me, I mean, this is the, the hardest part about being a business owner. I think the hardest part about sales is you have to, you have to embrace this concept of saying no to people. I can't, I'm not the right vendor for you. Now there's two ways to do it. One is what's called a negative sell, which is I'm probably not the right firm. You kind of push them to get them to come back and be like, well, no, no, you seem really interesting, Mark and Fuzzy Math, come come on. That's not necessarily what I'm talking about, although it is a pretty good sales tactic. tactic. Um, it's more about just saying flat out, I don't think you're a fit. And that can come from a personality fit. I've had you know people who are really successful in their business and some they have a partner who's like, hey, we got to improve the UX. You get on a call with the two partners and, and me or three fellow co-founders. And, and I talk about how we, how we get people to change in organizations and, and embrace change, which is the biggest challenge um, is getting people to change. And they start talking about the UI and, and one, and this one founder is very much like, all we need you to do is come and improve the UI and, and, and their apprehension, um, you know, it feels a little disrespectful. I tried to take things too personal, but I know that that's not going to be a good, good project. If a client, if I'm having a, ch- a trouble communicating with a client during a sales call, them understanding me and me understanding them is not going to be any different on a project. It is My team is going to struggle with them and they're going to struggle with me. So maybe if it's a marquee client, big company, we want to take the work. We, we, we onboard that risk. But for a lot of of a lot of projects, it's it's not worth it. I mean, there's always this: do we have enough work in the pipeline? Worry, um, but I think what I'm what, my point in saying I'm doing more new business development is I'm trying to go find good opportunities and finding them. We still get plenty of inbound, given that you know if you search for UX agency, Chicago consultancies, actually across the U.S., you're gonna find we're gonna be on some lists. You're gonna find us certainly in Chicago. We pop up. There's a few other folks doing the work, so it's like we still get plenty of inbound. Uh, work that we can respond to, but that's the apples to apples, right? That's, Hey, I'm talking to you and I'm talking to three other agencies. Well, what are they going to, what are they going to compete on to you, to your point? Um, I'm, I'm probably going to look pretty darn similar. And I can't say, Hey, one of my strategic advantages is that I'm really good at training people. Um, and we're good at mentoring. Like that only works if we're selling in an organizational design, like we're helping build a, yeah. a UX team, but otherwise it's sort of like, yeah, okay, but show me what you've done. So it's hundred percent apples to apples. You're putting us or on a do grade. I like you? Yeah. Or do, do I like you? Which is a, I generally one that I, I want them to like me, but I'm not going to be, um, I don't go into sales calls, um, wanting people to, to like me. Um, because I think, um, uh, it comes out naturally through the process. I don't have to, mm-hmm. I don't have to figure that out. So, so I want to go find people that have a problem that's big enough that they're willing to pay for it. And our mm-hmm. service is the one that the service is offering that, that does it as opposed to them coming to me and saying, Hey, I need this as fast as possible, highest quality. And so my question is, will you pay a premium for that? And if they say no, then, uh, then I'm not in, I can't go fast. I can't go great. And, and, you know, have no margin on this work. My business doesn't sustain itself. It's a common problem. I think with growth within agencies in particular, like our listening on and struggles, you know, to say no and know how to say no and when to say no. And it's listening to you, what comes really clearly in the past couple of questions that you guys have talked through is you're looking for clients that share the same core value and quality of work. That's, that's the ideal fit for you. And being, that's a really, it's a, it's a hard niche, but it's a, it's a really good strong niche. Cause it allows you to say, mm, I don't know, mm, yeah. I'm good, you know, and it's, it takes years to get there. Um, from, but it's a, it's a growth. A it growth. does. And they be, those clients then become repeat clients or they move elsewhere. 
you know, half of our work comes from inside of our network, either people we've worked for or, um, you know, that have been referred to us. And that's, that's because we've chosen the right clients. You know, we've selected the right clients and they're a fit for us so we can provide great work. There's been, I'll, I'll be honest, during COVID, you know, there were a project or two, which maybe weren't a perfect fit for us, but we took because it was like, this is, you want to sign a contract in, in the spring of 2020, I'm probably going to do it if I have, I have the team and stuff like that. And those projects don't end up becoming referable and they end up becoming a little bit of a struggle and we still do good, did good work and the clients are happy, but it's not going to grow the business. Um, if you can get five big clients that are great referrals for you and a great fit for your business, just five, they, they will fuel your business for, for two or three years. It's hard to get to that five but they become a force multiplier for you in the sales process. And, and it's only if they're a good fit, right? Now there's good names, which aren't a great fit. And those can turn into more work um, with that company. We worked with, you know, Microsoft and GE healthcare, like great clients, great fit. Um, those people went elsewhere and we just actually one of our pro bono projects. Somebody I worked with at Microsoft 10 years ago and just finished a project with another company out in Seattle. And that was a Microsoft and GE connection. They came back, I hadn't worked with them either one in 10 years and one in seven years, but they came back and remembered us and they needed us. And so it's, you got to kind of create this the big movable referral network mm-hmm. just by doing really good work. It's not, yeah, the partnerships have a play, um, but they're hard to pull off correctly. And who wants to be spammed by somebody being like, I am a, I own the UX agency in Chicago and I'm looking for partners. Like, uh, do you have a project for me, Mark? Uh, Cause that's when I want to talk to you. Yeah. I get plenty of people saying, Hey, I have a web development agency and I want to partner with fuzzy math. And my question to them is, do you have a project in front of you? Happy to talk about it. Otherwise nothing's going to come of it unless we have some work. So it's really got to be the work you do on projects to build that, that network. And I think people sometimes build agencies and don't actually focus as much on the work itself. And we've done just the opposite and not to say you can't scale in that way, but it's a different, it's a different way of scaling a business. Well, this was a, this was a, a good chat. We touched on a lot of things we haven't talked about so far through our, our podcast, especially some that I think a lot of us are thinking and not honestly enough saying <laughs> we've said them. So, um, you know, thank you for, for sharing a lot of that. Thank you for kind of addressing this head on and, and, and sharing some, some insight there. I, I appreciate it. I know Varun said it earlier too, but this was, this was a good, good chat. Um, I was before oh, you leave, I think okay. um, we were chatting, Jesse and me. I think it's worth asking. I know what fuzzy means. <laughs> I know what fuzzy maths means. I didn't know what it meant, and I felt like an but idiot asking. I'm curious <laughs> to know what, what, where did you come up with that? You know, what, you know, so yeah. Yes. Fuzzy logic is a thing, and fuzzy mathematics is, uh, I think, a component of that. And um, early on, we had, uh, we worked out of a small apartment, second floor. It's like very, you know, very, so very startup ish, right? Um, and we even had a client come over and, and ask us who lived in the, who lives in this unit. And, and we were like, no, this is our office. We had our sign up and a parent came in and wanted to know if we did tutoring. And so, um, I think people generally think we do math related activities. So here's where the name came from. We went through in a traditional creative process way and sort of brainstormed a number of ideas and kind of workshopped it out. The reason fuzzy math stuck out is because it speaks to the duality of the work we're doing. I mean, we're working on really complicated stuff that involves human psychology and humans are hard to figure out. They say one thing and do another Um, and solving for those really complicated problems. is kind of, it is kind of fuzzy. It is that, um, you know, um, more difficult thing to, to solve, but those are great problems to solve. And we look at the math side as kind of the, 
user-centered design process or human-centered design process that we go through. So we use something very structured in our toolkit um, that can tackle those fuzzy, complicated human psychology problems head on. Um, it also uh, is two words that you know and might not know what they mean, but they sound familiar. And we do get a lot of people who are like, I, oh, I know fuzzy math. But even early on, I was like, you couldn't know fuzzy math. We're, we're brand new. So there's this ancillary benefit of it sounds familiar and, and, and that just kind of works from a, a company name. So yeah. that's well, it. Thank you for <laughs> explaining as I was too embarrassed to ask. No, no, no worries. It's a good question. I mean, sometimes it comes up on client calls. Sometimes we actually have an index in it and, and address it. So it's a fun story. It's, it's worked well for us over the past 12 years. I, I love the name and can't imagine having a business name or anything else. Good. Well, like I said earlier, this was great. So where people, the list of player people can find you, I've got you, you're on LinkedIn, you're on the Twitter as fuzzy math, uh, fuzzymath.com. And then you also have a blog and a newsletter that I think are available to folks if they want to get in touch or kind of stay up to snuff on what's going on in your world. So that is a hundred percent where to find me and fuzzy math. Great. Well, thank you so much, Mark, for being here. Um, that's it, everyone. If you learned something today or laugh, tell somebody about the podcast. Thanks so much. See you next time. Thanks for listening. Find our other episodes on agencies that build.com. Plus we're listed anywhere you find your favorite podcast.